Hello there, I am the Disaster Podcaster, and welcome to this, the first episode of the first series of what might hopefully be a long line of series, where I will investigate the great disasters of history, be them from man's own doing to natural causes. And we will be beginning with the most classic, perhaps, of all disasters, and that is the sinking of the RMS Titanic on April the 15th, 1912, in the icy waters of the North Atlantic. This is going to be a seven-part series where we will investigate everything about the disaster itself, from the conception of the Titanic, uh, when she was just an idea in the mind of the White Star Line, to her construction, what the details of her engineering and uh, passenger facilities were like, and then going on to the days before the sinking and what the passenger experience uh, was, and then finally culminating with the sinking, the aftermath, and we'll have a look at the wreck too, and maybe some pop culture references as well. Before we get into it though, we should uh, perhaps go through a glossary of terms, because this is going to get heavily nautical, and going forward these terms, I think, will be quite important in orientating, orientating yourself on the ship. The bow is the front of a ship. The stern is the rear of a ship. And you can remember bow by when you bow forwards. That's where the forward end of the ship is. Port is to the left. Starboard is to the right. Port is a four-letter word. Left is a four-letter word, if that helps make it easier. Other words, perhaps getting into the engineering. A screw is a propeller. And a list is when a ship tilts from one way to the other, and uh, that's going to come up quite heavily in the case of Titanic. With all that covered, hopefully I'll be able to get all the jargon explained as I go, and just remember that there will also be an appendix for each episode uh, in the Google Drive folder, where you can follow along for reference with the photos if you would like to, but it's not essential. And with all that housekeeping done, let's get cracking. Senator, we understand that a plane has crashed into the World Trade Center. One of the atomic reactors at the Chernobyl in atomic the power plant in the city of Kiev was damaged. The Caribbean island nation of Haiti has been blocked by the biggest Disasters on the scale of Titanic's don't just happen. It takes a great many number of things to go wrong for them to come to fruition. And in the case of Titanic, it's important to understand not only her size and scale in a physical sense, but also from a social and an economic standpoint uh, for what she meant for the pride of Britain at the time. And to do that, we have to set the scene by taking our minds back to the turn of the century in Europe and America. The transatlantic shipping trade is in a complete frenzy. Ships are becoming ever larger, and they are taking a greater number of passengers each time a new one is built, and they connect the two continents. They are the main uh, method in which people be, are able to travel between them. And this ability to travel between Europe and America is vital for businessmen, immigrants, and it's also a thing of leisure as well. Ocean liners, so-called because they follow lines in the ocean, were established and were the ever-expanding method of travel for the elite to the humble migrant. The UK was entering the Edwardian era, era, which was a time marked by great invention and themes of man's triumph over nature through engineering. There was a feeling that they had toppled the great forces of the ocean with these larger ships. And Britain had long held a reputation as the master of the seas, no surprise, but competition was growing particularly from Germany at the behest of Kaiser Wilhelm II. 
And this move had roused British nationalism and prompted the response of Britain's two major shipping companies, Cunard and the White Star Line. Top tip for you, Cunard ships end in IA or IA and the White Star Line ships end in IC, IC. And Titanic, of course, belonged to the White Star Line. Now, the White Star Line name was derived from a company that actually used to manage the Australian run uh, from UK to Australia, but went bankrupt uh, in the mid-1800s and was actually bought out by a British businessman under the name of Thomas Ismay for the name uh, for the cost of £1,000. And the company actually quickly became to compete with Cunard, and by 1899, the White Star Line launched their first ship, which was to compete with the likes of Germany. And this was called the Oceanic, and there's a photo there in 1A for you if you'd like to see what it looked like. Grand-looking thing in the classic White Star livery, and this was a 17,000-ton transatlantic liner built on White Star Line's new philosophy of luxury over speed. Now, sadly, Thomas Ismay died at the age of 62 in 1899 and never witnessed the full heights of his company, but he left it to his son, Joseph Bruce Ismay, or J. Bruce Ismay, as we now like to call him, who came to manage the company. And there's a photo of him there in 1B in the appendix. Uh, handsome chap. Under his supervision... The company went on to build the Celtic in 1901, the Cedric in 1903, the Baltic in 04, and the Adriatic in 1907. And the Adriatic was the largest of those ships at 24,000 tons. And these collectively were known as the Big Four. Now, during this time, the White Star Line was actually bought out by J.P. Morgan, the American financier, and rolled into his steamship combine, which was later called the International Mercantile Marine, or IMM. And Ismay would head the both of them, and that would obviously mean he had a greater power uh, of which to do things with his ships. Cunard saw this and responded with the first true superliners of the day, and these are ships still famous today, and this was they are called the Lusitania and the Mauritania, which were launched in 1906. They were 241 metres long, they weighed about 30,000 tonnes, and were the most lavishly appointed ships yet to be built. And there's a photo of the two sisters there in 1C. They were turbine-driven, which is essentially a large uh, jet-engine-looking thing where steam would pass through. And this was a relatively new technology, and Cunard was all over it, and it was quite efficient. So they could make 66,000 horsepower, uh, which drove four screws, propellers, and they were fast. Mauritania edged out her older sister and could go about 26 knots, or 48 kilometers an hour. Ismay knew to compete he would have to make ships as good as if not better than the Cunarders, and had been in talks with the head of an Irish building company, Harland and Wolf, based in Belfast. He was in talks with uh, this company well before the Cunarders were launched. Who did he talk to specifically? Well, he was well acquainted with uh, Harland and Wolf's head, Lord Pirry, uh, and he spent many a night in Pirry's home dreaming up the basic ideas of a new class superliner and taking White Star Line to the pinnacle of maritime engineering. In 1907, the White Star Line formally submitted a request to Harland and Wolfe to build two ships to counter the threat of Lusitania and Mauritania. And the shipyard immediately set to work on building the two new slipways for the ships to build in, and, uh, in 1907. And these two ships would be practically built alongside one another. They were to be 269 metres long, nearly 30 metres longer than the Cunarders, 29 metres wide, they would gross at 45,000 tonnes and travel at 21 knots, which was slower but still competitive and in line with their mantra of luxury over speed. In December of 1908, the keel, or the, the bottommost portion of a ship's hull, 
uh, of the first ship was laid down, and she was to be named Olympic. And then in March 1908, the keel of her sister was laid down. Her name was to be Titanic. And over the course of 1909 to 1910, the hulls of both of these ships took shape, with about 15,000 workers on the job, working at it seven, six out of seven days a week. Harlan and Wolfe didn't provide housing for the workers, but they were separated to a large extent by religion, with the Catholics to the west of Belfast in County Antrim and the Protestants to the east in County Down. And as the two ships were Lord Pirrie and Ismay's brainchild, Pirrie likely drew up the first plans in 1907, and taking charge in 1908 was Pirrie's brother-in-law, Alexander Carlyle, who had worked his way up the ranks to become the chairman of the managing directors, and he was intimately involved with the plans and construction of the two liners. However, he actually retired before the job was finished in 1910, and his replacement was one of Harlan and Wolfe's up-and-coming young stars, a well-built, athletic man who would often sport a paint-smeared bowler hat and was none other than Peary's nephew, Thomas Andrews Jr. And despite the connection, Andrews had actually worked tirelessly to work his way up the ranks of the company, and was regarded by his own peers and workers as a cordial, intelligent, and modest man who was extremely dedicated to his work and family. Andrews would often walk the shipyard to supervise construction, and reportedly encourage workers not to do their jobs mindlessly and he actually heard out their input on how to improve building technique and even shared his lunch with them sometimes. Assisting the oversight of Titanic was senior naval architect uh, Edward Wilding who was 35. He assisted Andrews heavily and knew the ship's design almost as well as him and 54 year old Francis Carruthers who worked for the British Board of Trade also oversaw the construction of Titanic, and he acted as a link between Harlan and Wolfe and the board to make sure the ship building technique was up to scratch. So what were the key features of these two ships' construction and the Olympic-class liners? They were essentially a large tub with narrowing ends made of steel plates, which were each plate was about an inch thick. Uh, and this whole tub is termed the hull. Olympic was hull number 400 and Titanic 401. They had a double-bottom keel, which is essentially an outer wall at the bottom of the steel plates, a six-foot gap, and then an inner wall with another bunch of plates going the whole length of the ship on the bottom. And this formed a watertight space that you could actually fit a person in for extra damage protection from grounding on the bottom. The idea being if they hit a rock, then water might come up through the first layer but not be able to pierce the second one, and the ship would be able to continue on. However, the double-bottom, as it was called, was just that. It didn't run up the sides, and there's a good diagram cross-section here in 1D, if you like. But the entire hull can be considered as a series of, if you're looking at it from the top down, of H-shaped girders joined uh, lengthways. On, and the sides of the H represent the outside walls, and the dashes in the middle uh, represent the watertight bulkheads that went across, uh, separating Titanic and Olympic into compartments. Now, lengthways, this hull was divided into 16 watertight compartments by the steel walls that ran up, and these walls ran up to varying heights depending on the compartment. It wasn't just a, a simple big grid. The iron and steel plating was held together by rivets. Three million of them. What on earth's a rivet? It's a permanent mechanical fastener, and it's essentially a big large nail that can be hammered into two plates to join them together. And they're typically hammered in when they're nice and hot, and they expand and create a seal. And these rivets alone weighed about 1,200 tonnes. A variety of riveting methods took place, 
In the harder to reach areas with more complicated shapes, a team of five, known as a rivet gang, would manually heat and hammer the rivets between the two plates that needed joining. And in other areas, the newly invented hydraulic rivet press could be used. And there's a photo of two workers there using that on Titanic in 1E. And it gives you a good sense of scale of the build and also the dangers of how you might fall off that scaffolding. It was hard work. The teams worked from 6am to 5.30pm with a half hour break and two seven-minute toilet breaks that were timed by a clerk, and additional breaks landed you a fine unless you had a doctor's note. Uh, All this effort of riveting was actually done because electric arc welding, which is what we use now to basically construct ships, while invented in 1890 and was around, it never really reached shipbuilding until World War I. As such, riveting didn't make the plates watertight, and for that the plates needed to be caulked, which essentially is chiseling one of them until they bend into the other one to create a seal. And all in all, about 200 rivet gangs worked on Titanic. The two ships actually provided such an enormous employment uh, to the city of Belfast that they were taken into the collective hearts of its people as a great source of pride for the industrial city. And progress was pretty quick too. Olympic was finished in October of 1910, with Titanic in May of 1911. And just a side note, these ships were actually launched and sort of, you know, finished in the slipway, so to speak, uh, as just a complete hull, not a complete ship. It was watertight, so it could float. It's more cheaper to float it out and take it off elsewhere to finish it than to keep it in the slipway as it gets more lofty and uh, cumbersome to build upon. And from once they were launched and floated out, then the superstructures of the top decks, the funnels and all of that would be added on. And the interior was also completed in a process known as fitting out. Titanic was launched on May 31st, 1911, with some 100,000 workers present, and uh, also their families, notable dignitaries, and the bigwigs at Harland and Wolf uh, and White Star, namely Lord Pirrie and Ismay. One worker by the name of James Dobbin was actually crushed and killed by a falling timber as the support timbers that were holding up Titanic were knocked out on her launch day. And Also, while we're on this topic, about eight people were actually killed in the Titanic's construction, mainly from uh, being crushed, uh, from things that being lifted in by the crane and falling off the scaffolding. However, the launch continued despite the death of uh, Dobbin, and it was given a similar fanfare to Olympic, but it didn't actually have a bottle of champagne broken over the prow. That is uh, something of Hollywood. never actually happened. It was estimated to take about seven months to finish the rest of the Titanic, just as Olympic took, and that would place her maiden voyage somewhere in January of 1912. However, the maiden voyage was actually shifted back two months to March 20th, 1912, due to demands from Ismay to make the changes to the Titanic based upon some lessons learned from the Olympic, which had already been launched in sailing. Olympic was such a huge success as well that they also decided to order a third Olympic-class ship, which would later be known as the Britannic. And while Olympic was a venerable success, some changes were needed, and the idea was to have these done to Titanic so that they would be there from the get-go on a maiden voyage. They ranged from better ventilation in the first-class spaces to the addition of two parlour suites, which were the most luxurious accommodation option afloat at the time, unquestionably. Each suite had three interconnecting cabins, complete with two bedrooms, a private bathroom and a sitting room, as well as a 14 by 4 metre private promenade deck, which is essentially a protected balcony. And there's an image of that one there in 1F. And interestingly, this is also the suite that Jack paints Rose in uh, as a French girl in the sitting room in James Cameron's 1997 Titanic, and was occupied by Cal in the movie. 
On the real maiden voyage, however, the deluxe uh, portside parlour suite was occupied by Bruce Ismay, remember ports to the left, and the starboard, that's the right, was occupied by Charlotte Cardeza for £512, six shillings for the crossing, or the equivalent of 121000 Australian dollars today. So certainly the most expensive as well. Titanic's March maiden voyage was actually delayed again by two events concerning Olympic. And these are a bit more interesting than just improvements. On September 20th, 1911, on her fifth voyage, Olympic collided with HMS Hawk, which was a British battleship. And there's a photo of this collision, the aftermath at least, in 1G there. And it's a good example of you should see the other guy with Olympic actually sustaining very little damage. And HMS Hawk, which was a battleship designed to sink ships by ramming into them, completely buckling in on the bow where she struck Olympic. Olympic did manage to float away. Uh, Her propeller shaft was damaged and plating needed to be uh, replaced, and this was all taken from the Titanic, which was just still sitting there, not ready to be sailed. And then in March of 1912, Olympic threw her port propeller blade, uh, meaning it simply fell off, and this was taken again from Titanic's port propeller blade, which hadn't been put on yet, and that delayed Titanic's voyage to Wednesday, April 10th, 1912. Before Titanic was ready to take any passengers, however, she had to go through some sea trials, and these commenced on April the 2nd, uh, eight days before her maiden voyage, and they consisted of progressing the ship from a slow ahead to full speed ahead, and swinging the vessel hard over at full speed, and this is basically just turning it all the way to the left, and turning it all the way to the right to see if she can cope with the stresses. On the steering gear, Now, Titanic completed this test between 18 to 20 knots, and this is the exact manoeuvre which she would complete all too late on the evening of April the 14th. She also tested coming to a full stop, which was achieved in 3 minutes 16 seconds from top speed, and this took about a distance of 915 metres, which was considered exceptional at the time given her size and speed. Overall, the tests were a grand success, and the liner left Belfast for good bound for Southampton on the evening of April 2nd, and the mood in Belfast was apparently quite sombre, as the great ship that once towered above the industrial city and was a huge source of pride for its citizens, left and was to never be seen again. Once she arrived at Southampton, uh, the third officer of the Titanic, Officer Blair at the time, although he'd later be replaced, notified the lookouts in the crow's nest, of his name was George Hogg, to place the binoculars that he had lent him in a safe location. And Hogg did so, and uh, put him in a lock cabinet in Blair's cabin, and then gave the keys to able-bodied seaman William Weller to return to Blair. Just remember that one for later. Unfortunately for Titanic, however, she actually arrived in Southampton during a mining strike, which was uh, crippling the coal supply of much of the UK at the time. As such, coal was hard to get and very expensive, but seeing as Titanic was such a huge priority... She managed to source some coal, and the coal strike finally ended on April 6th. Now, to load the vessels, they were pushed out from the shore with the mooring lines nice and tight so they wouldn't go anywhere. And then on either side, coal barges, or coalies as they were called, would line the ship's 35 coal ports, which led down a chute and into the coal bunkers where workers would evenly distribute the coal to prevent it listing or tilting over from one side because the weight was uneven. Coaling took place from Thursday the 4th of April and some of Friday the 5th of April and brought the total coal on board to 5,892 tonnes. 
and after coaling, the various aspect of the ship actually still needed completing as she was so new, and this occurred right up until the day she set sail, and she was referred to by by the first-class passengers, mainly, as the Ship of Flowers, as the White Star Line had placed an excessive amount of them everywhere throughout the ship in hopes of masking the smell of the fresh paint that was still being applied the day before sailing. At Southampton, Titanic was docked at berth 44, and she was decorated in ceremonial flags of the world to celebrate her maiden voyage. And there's a photo of her standing tall and proud there in 1H. And by the evening of April 9th, all was set aboard Titanic. She had the required crew who had reached Southampton, the food and cargo supplies were loaded, and there was a sense of trepidation for the maiden voyage of the grandest liner that the world had ever seen up until that point. That, of course, is the topic for a future episode. But before we actually get into the uh, sailing of the vessel, we are going to have a look at the ship itself in her design, from the deck layouts to the facilities that were on offer to the passengers, and also some of the details of her crew. Titanic was essentially useless without a crew being able to keep her ship shape, and some of the passengers too as well. Until that episode, however, travel safely. And be sure to shoot me any questions you like, as they might feature at the start of a future episode. Till the next time, this has been The Disaster Podcaster. Oh, hello there. Thank you for listening to this episode, and you have discovered the bonus section in the credits where... I will reveal some weird titanic fact. And seeing as we've talked about the ship's construction in this first episode, did you know that the ship cost $7 million to construct in 1912, which is the equivalent of $183.4 million US dollars today? Which frankly doesn't seem like that much when you consider that cruise ships cost about a billion dollars to produce these days. So in a way, the Titanic was kind of a bargain. Anyway, I'll see you at the next episode.